Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, Judges chapters four and five. Um, as we moved into Judges chapter four last week, we encountered the female Shofet, Devrah. And the judges discussed in the chapters before Devrah dealt with the idolatrous rebellions of the tribes of Israel that were generally located at the southern end of the promised land. And thus, enemies from the south and the southwest and the southeast troubled those particular Israelite tribes. Now, with the judge Deborah, the scene shifts now to the northern end of Canaan and the Israelite tribes who lived up there. Thus it was Canaanites and others whose kingdoms and nations were located up north and to the northeast that created havoc for those particular Israelite tribes. Now note that as a result of this kind of southern versus northern picture that's painted for us, it means that when we look at the list of Shoftim, the list of judges that's painted uh, for us that, that the order they are in chronologically appearing to be chronologically at least is only partially correct certainly some judges in the south were operating at the same time as some other judges up in the north there, so there was overlap going on and this is because the various enemies of Israel were not acting always in concert with one another, but in their own interests. So what went on in the north of Canaan usually had little to do with what was going on in the south. Now, I find it interesting that this north-south dynamic is being set up so early. Israel, by the time of Deborah, has only been in the land for a century or maybe a little more. But due to the natural terrain of Israel with a ridge of hills at the northern end of Judah that kind of extends at an angle up this direction, um, it, there's a natural boundary that's provided. And it kind of separates the three main tribes of the south, which are Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, from the remaining tribes up north. And this fact of geography was going to have an ongoing effect on Israel's politics and economy and on their prophetic futures. Now, I've taught rather extensively on the period following the judges when David and Solomon ruled over a united nation of Israel. We find, for instance, the King Saul who preceded David had at least as big a fight on his hands just trying to unite all 12 tribes because the southern tribes of Israel were battling against the northern tribes of Israel as he did against the foreigners because the Israelite tribes located at the two ends of Canaan tended to coalesce into two distinct groups and sets of intertribal alliances and so they progressed kind of independently of each other. Thus, after King Solomon died, and there was no clear line of succession to the throne, 
the country of Israel fell rapidly into a civil war and, of course, divided along that same general boundary line that uh, had always existed for Israel. The rugged hills that separated Judah from Ephraim. And thus, from that time forward, after the death of Solomon, King Solomon, we hear of two kingdoms of Israel. The southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, or their more official names, Judah in the south and Ephraim, or Ephraim Israel, in the north. So, it is here, actually, in Judges, that we see the breeding grounds created for the conditions that would establish and cement this north versus south mindset among the Israelites, which in turn would make it such a challenge for the twelve tribes ever to unite uh, into one sovereign nation under God, under one ruler. Now, these unintended consequences of divided loyalties and tribal alliances would greatly affect Israel's history and will even continue to play out in our present and our future, especially as revealed in the book of Ezekiel. And all of this was ordained as part of God's master plan of redemption for a fallen world. So let's reread some of Judges chapter 4 as we get into our study today. Uh, Judges chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 4. So that's page um, 274 in your complete Jewish Bible. Now Deborah, a woman and a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she used to sit under Deborah's palm between Ramah and Bedel in the hills of Ephraim, and the people of Israel would come to her for judgment. She sent for Barak, the son of Avinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Adonai has given you this order. Go, march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and Zebulun. I will cause Sisra, the commander of Yavin's army, to encounter you at the Kishon River with his chariots and troops, and I will hand him over to you. And Barak uh, answered her, If you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you go, don't, if you won't go with me, I won't go. And she replied, Yes, I will gladly go with you. But the way you're doing it will bring you no glory, because Adonai will hand Sisra over to a woman. Then Deborah set out and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to come to Kadesh. Ten thousand men followed him. And Deborah went up with him. Now, Heber the Keni had cut himself off from the rest of Cain the descendants of Hobab, Moshe's father-in-law. He had pitched his tent near the oak at Za'ananim, which is close to Kadesh. Sisra was informed that Barak, the son of Avinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisra rallied his chariots, all 900 iron chariots, and all the troops he had with him from Haoshet, Hagoyim, to the Kishon River. So Deborah said to Barak, Get going. This is the day when Adonai will hand Sisra over to you. Adonai has gone out ahead of you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Adonai threw Sisra, all his chariots, his entire army into a panic before Barak's sword. So that Sisra got down from his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army all the way to Harashet Hagoyim. 
Sisra's entire army was put to the sword. Not one man was left. However, Sisra ran on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenny, because there was peace between Yavin, the king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenny. Yael went out to meet Sisra and said to him, Come in, my lord. Stay here with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. Well, she opened a goatskin of milk, gave him some to drink, and covered him up again. He said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If anyone asks you if somebody's in here, say no. But when he was deeply asleep, Gael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, crept into him quietly, and drove the tent peg into his temple right through to the ground so that he died without waking up. So here is Barak pursuing Sisra and Yael steps out to meet him and says, Come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. He goes into her tent and there is Sisra lying dead with the tent peg through his temple. Thus God on that day defeated Yavin, the king of Canaan, in the presence of the people of Israel. The land of the people of Israel came down more and more heavily against Yavin, the king of Canaan, until they had completely destroyed Yavin, the king of Canaan. Deborah was unique among the Shoftim, as she was a bench judge and she was a prophetess. Verse 5 explains her location as being in the hills of Ephraim meaning she operated among the northern tribes of Israel. Now, what's kind of hidden here is that by some non-stated reason, Deborah was revered by most, if not all, the tribes and clans of the north, such that they would come to her to settle serious legal disputes. This was not merely advice or suggestions that they were being that were being sought by the people. It was going to be binding legal rulings that resulted from Deborah's decisions. Each tribe had the equivalent of their own lower courts that settled smaller matters. But when a member of one tribe had a dispute with a member of another tribe, the matter became more complicated as clan and tribal loyalties overruled almost all other considerations. So finding a neutral party to arbitrate and judge was never an easy prospect. Now, the matter of Deborah bring up being a prophetess also played a role in her judging. And likely, it was this general acknowledgement that she had been anointed by God as his legitimate prophet that gave her an uncontested position of authority to make these legal rulings. Thus, in verse 5, in what is very typical biblical prophet protocol she announces an oracle from God by making it clear that this message is not her message as from a wisdom teacher but rather it is directly from God and this typical format is to say something in the effect of well the Lord says or Adonai has given you this order or here's what the God of Israel says to you and then proceeds to speak what must have been a, a near, if not precise, word-for-word word instruction from Jehovah 
that's almost always said in the first person. In other words, once that prophet gets to the instruction, it begins, I, the Lord. The I, though, is never the prophet. It's always simply that prophet making a direct quote from God. Now, it's been a while since I've broached this dicey subject of prophets and prophecy, and especially concerning modern era prophets. But I want to make a very brief point, rile some of you up a little bit, and then we'll move on. Prophets of the Bible had to be infallible in what they pronounced with the consequence of error being death. Now, while that might seem harsh or barbaric superstition gone wild, in fact, it is completely logical. If one is going to pronounce to someone or some group of people a word from the Lord, then if it is actually a word from the Lord, it better happen exactly as pronounced. If it does not happen as prophesied, then whether the source of that incorrect oracle was from that person's own mind or it was prompted from an evil spiritual source, it most certainly was not from God. Therefore, we have a false prophet. And never is a false prophet to be believed. So, one test for a person who publicly professes a gift of prophecy is infallibility in their prophecies. One mistake, one pronouncement that does not happen, and that person should realize that they're either not a prophet at all, or they're grossly misusing their position. My email, I will tell you, is constantly flooded by people professing to me a word from the Lord. And I tend to keep pretty close track. Because if a person constantly hits the nail on the head, and what is prophesied could not possibly be otherwise known by a human, and if it comports with holy scriptural principles, I definitely want to hear what that person has to say because I want to hear from God. On the other hand, if that person tells me that the Lord says that so-and-so is going to become president and it doesn't happen, or they say a certain building is going to burn down next week and it's still there, or Israel is going to be attacked in July and nothing happens, I will never pay attention to that person's pronouncements to me again. Never. That person's not a prophet from God. And by the way, if any of this applies to anybody, any one of you that's listening to me, beware. If If what you have ever pronounced as being a message from God has not proved out, stop it. Quit it now. Save yourself from a very harsh judgment because you're misleading people and you're using God's name to do it. You know, you don't have to read too deep into the Bible to find out that being a prophet is a very dangerous business when you're a true prophet. Being a false prophet 
can be physically and spiritually fatal. So be very careful if you've developed a habit of telling people that you have a word for the Lord from them. A word from the Lord for them, rather. Every last thing you say in that context had better come about. For you're working against God even if you have good intention. Okay. Being labeled a false prophet is one of the worst epithets the Bible has to offer upon a person. Enough said. So in verses 6 and 7, Deborah, being a true divinely anointed prophet, simply relays the Lord's message to the military commander Barak with the specific details that he's to take 10,000 Israelite troops with him to Mount Tibor and that these troops are to be from the two tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. There is the river valley below Mount Tabor that the Lord will use to cause the defeat of the enemy. Now, the emphasis of the story shifts away from Deborah as God's messenger to Barak as the one who's now commissioned to confront this enemy force and carry out God's promises to hand over that enemy to him. It is Barak, not Deborah, who would be Jehovah's instrument to deliver the northern tribes of Israel from the very oppression that God had influenced to happen as a means of punishment upon his people for their rebellious idolatry. Now, notice that Barak is from a place called Kadesh. And as I've said on a few occasions, Kadesh was a very common city name all during the Bible era. And it was copied and it was used at many locations simultaneously. Apparently, this particular Kadesh was in the tribal territory of Naphtali, although there was another one located very near Mount Tabor that could have also been Barak's home. Now, Barak was probably of the tribe of Naphtali, and consequently, the passage immediately mentions the primary constituents of his army as Naphtali and Zebulun, although we're going to find out later on that other northern Israelite tribes also supplied soldiers for the battle against Sisera. Now, more, the enemy's capital city of Hatzor, Yavin, king of Hatzor's royal city, was also in Naphtali, the territory of Naphtali. So, Barak was a pretty logical choice to command Israel's troops. The valley of Jezreel, which was very much a prize to be had if Israel could succeed against Sisera was in Zebulun's territory. So, it was expected that Naphtali and Zebulun would supply the bulk of the troops and be at the forefront of the coming battle. That said, the next chapter of Judges, chapter 5, does open the door slightly to the possibility that Barak was of the tribe of Issachar, but that's not probably not so. Now, the Kishon River at the foot of Mount Tabor was the second biggest river in Canaan, even though it was generally pretty dry in the summer. So it had the capacity to be a force in any battle, depending on the time of the year and its current conditions. Thus we can guess that the Lord would supernaturally use it as he uses all of nature. Right? Um, 
and often uses nature as a prime weapon in his arsenal. Which, by the way, although it's not politically correct to mention, is something we need to be aware of in our day as we watch some blatantly evil anti-God affair of men come about only to be immediately, coincidentally followed by some catastrophic weather or nature-related event. Keep your eye on those things. There is a classic divine dichotomy set up here that we ought to be used to by now. It is the if-then dichotomy. That is, if a man or a people will do a certain thing in obedience, then God will respond in favor. And here it is that if Barak will lead 10,000 men to Tabor and attack at the river Kishon, then God will ensure a smashing victory. And there's an interesting word usage here that is invariably masked by the English translations that adds to this if-then reciprocal action of man then God. In verse 6, the Lord instructs Barak not to march his men to Mount Tabor, as is often translated, just like in our complete Jewish Bible. But rather, it says he is to mashach, M-A-C-H-A-K, mashach, to Tabor. Mashach means to draw. To influence his men to come. Barak's leadership and courage then would be the influential spark that would cause the downtrodden Israelites, downtrodden under years of Canaanite oppression, to rise up, follow him, and have hope for liberty now put into action. Then in verse 7, God says, in return, he will mashak, draw, Sisra and his troops to come and do battle at the place God has ordained for their destruction. The uh, Kishon River Valley. You know, we Christians like to say to one another that the Lord never overrides a man's free will. But, in fact, we see something similar to that happening all the time in the Bible when the Lord determines to do so. We saw the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart thus causing him to make destructive decisions that he apparently would not have normally done. We see here that from a strategic standpoint, a great general like Sisera, um, who was going to do battle with a large force of Israelites who held the high ground, Mount Tabor, usually a situation that's avoided militarily if at all possible, Sisera was going to do it anyway. He was going to come in and be at the low ground. And then later on in Revelation, we're going to see God draw, we're told, Israel's enemies from the north to this very same place. The Jezreel Valley, the Kishon River area, to be annihilated by the saints of the Lord as led by our warrior king, Messiah Yeshua, at the Battle of Armageddon. Same place as we're reading about now. And in between all these passages, we're going to find many places where the Lord causes, influence, draws men to do something we wouldn't ordinarily do. Now, Barak responds to God's call through Deborah by saying that he's a bit skeptical 
So he's got some preconditions if he's going to accept this assignment. Sounds a little bit like Moses, doesn't it? No doubt part of his skepticism is why a very good military commander like Cicero would irrationally put his troops in the untenable position of being 1,000 feet below his opponents. I mean, his primary precondition is that Deborah accompanies him to the battle arena. Now, we, we shouldn't interpret this as cowardice, as Brock was anything but a coward. Okay? Rather, he wanted to be assured of God's presence, and Deborah was his assurance. So Deborah tells Brock that she will indeed go with him, but that as a consequence of his reluctance and skepticism to simply believe that God uh, will, will give them glory, that glory now is not going to go to him like it should have. Instead, it's going to go to a woman. Now, naturally, at this point, we all assume, as Barak must have, that this woman was Deborah since she would be present at the battle. And her notoriety would certainly supersede that of Barak's. Even more, it turns out, that what is said about Sisera being handed over to a woman will turn out to be even more literal than it appears. Because in this context, saying Sisera is usually referring to Sisera's army. But here it means that Sisera himself will be handed over to a woman, although Barak probably didn't understand that. And of course, such a thing not only takes glory away from Barak, but it's greatly humiliating to Sisera and to his army and to his nation that a woman in a completely male-dominated society would be the agent of their defeat. Now, verse 11 begins another angle on this story. It's about a group of people led by a fellow named Hever the Kenite. Now, Kenites were a clan that belonged to the tribe of Midian. And this clan had a much closer than usual attachment to Israel because this was the clan of Moses' wife, Zipporah. Okay. The Kenites were normally pro-Israel, to use modern vernacular. But this particular sub-clan or extended family of Haver, the Kenite, had broken away and either formed a direct alliance with Yavin, king of Hatzor, or informally agreed to inform on the movements of Israel to some degree or another, likely in return for being protected from the Canaanite oppression. The Kenite clan was located, the main Kenite clan was located in Arad, in the Negev, south of Judah. But here we find Hever's family was located up north, near the royal city of Hatzor. So indeed, the separation from his clan was both political and geographical. In any case, while what Hever did was meant for evil, we will see that God's going to use it to bring about his will. Well, verse 12 begins the unfolding of how this battle now actually went down. Hever informed Sisera that Barak had formed an army and was heading for Mount Tabor. Just as Deborah's prophecy foretold, 
Sisera reacted by mustering his forces and leading them from a place called Haroshet Hagoyim, the woodlands of the Gentiles, to the Kishon River that ran along the base of Mount Tabor. Now, even though standard military tactics say that such a move is foolhardy, Sisera was greatly confident in his enormous battalion of iron chariots, a most fearsome weapon that terrorized Israel. And certainly, even in his arrogance, Sisera knew that a muddy battlefield would essentially neutralize the advantage of his chariots, so he must have fully expected a dry riverbed and good firm ground. Therefore, likely this battle was going to take place in the summertime. Sisera was completely unaware that the Lord was setting a trap for him. It's recorded in verse 14 that Deborah encouraged Brock and his troops by the call to action of get going, this is the day that the Lord is going to hand Sisera over to you. And the context is such that she must have been at the plateau of Mount Tabor with Barak because immediately, we're told, Barak and his 10,000 troops rushed down the hill towards the ready and waiting Sisera and his formidable army. Now, located at the western end of the Jezreel, here you see the Jezreel Valley, located at the western end of that valley, um, the battle begins in earnest, but just as quickly, something went terribly wrong for the Canaanite army, and they flew into a panic. And at this point, we're not told exactly what happened, although we get a lot more details in chapter 5. So the Canaanites, we're told, began abandoning many of their chariots and running away on foot, as did their leader, Sisera. The only reason to run on foot, instead of using a much faster team of horses attached to a chariot is that the chariots were apparently unable to move. Some chariots were able to escape apparently and as usual those fleeing soldiers began to make their way back to their home base at Haroshet Hagoyim but Israel was in hot pursuit. The Hebrew soldiers caught up to Sisera's men and killed them all. The victory wasn't complete though because Sisera himself was still on the run. Sisera obviously was taking a different route to safety than his men. While his army was trying to return to Haroshet Hagoyim, he was undoubtedly heading for the fortified royal city of Hatzor. The encampment of Heber the Canaanite was apparently on the way. And Sisera, knowing that this man was pro-Canaanite, stopped there to hide, to rest for a little while. Well, as Sisera entered the tent village, he encounters Haver's wife, Yael. Yael, by the way, means mountain goat. <laughs> they lived in tents. This explains instantly that they were nomads. They lived as Bedouins. Middle Eastern custom greatly values hospitality. But for nomads, hospitality was especially sanctified. The code of the Bedouin is such that they would give up their own lives to protect a guest, whether he's a friend or a stranger. 
This was common knowledge. So Sisera knew what he was doing in coming to Haver's people. In verse 18, we see Yael's actions. First, she properly greets Sisera and then in finest Bedouin tradition offers him more than he asks for. It's obvious to Yael that he was running for his life. Thus the words, don't be afraid. The implication being that she and her people, of course, would be a shield for him out of hospitality. He asked to rest. She offered him her own tent and a blanket. He asked for water. She offered him milk. It's been a folk remedy for all cultures, I think, that warm milk is soothing and helps to bring on sleep. And in that day, there was not such a thing as cold milk. So exhausted and now drowsy from the warm milk, um, Yael tells, uh, is standing guard to ten entrance. And modesty traditions would indicate that if indeed she had said to a male Israelite soldier that there was nobody in my tent, he would have honored it and not entered. Now feeling comfortable enough that he's safe, Sisra lays down in Yael's tent and she covers him over with a blanket and immediately he falls into a deep sleep. Well, in a very uncharacteristic move, Yael surprises when she picks up a tent peg and a hammer, steals into her tent when she's assured that Sisra is asleep, and she drives that wooden tent peg through his temple, all the way through his skull, his brain, out the other side, and right into the ground. Death is instantaneous, and Sisra, we're told, doesn't even stir. Now, we should not doubt Yael's ability to pull off this grisly murder. It was the duty of the nomadic females to disassemble and re-erect their tents. Yael was an expert with a hammer. All right, and those sharp, wood hardened, wooden stakes. It would have taken probably little more than two or three quick strikes with that heavy, heavy hammer to drive that tent peg clean through Cesare's sleeping noggin. Thus, in a most unsuspected way, we find that Deborah's prophecy was fully accurate. Sisera was handed over to a woman, just not the one everyone expected. Needless to say, Yael must not have agreed with her husband's pro-Israelite, pro-Canaanite stance. When the pursuing Barak comes to the village of Haver, Yael runs out to meet him, directs him to her tent, and presents him with the skewered corpse. Now, the victory was finally complete, but poor Barak was denied the honor of executing the opposing military commander as was customary. And this was the result of his doubt when Deborah first presented God's instructions to him. Well, Judges chapter 4 ends with giving all the glory to the God of Israel for this resounding victory and deliverance. The battle, this battle at Mount Tabor and at the Kishon River 
was a tipping point. And so a people, the northern Israelite tribes who had only known humiliation and subjugation for many years now, found their courage and they turned the tables. And in a short time, Yavin, king of Hatzar, was no more and the threat was over. But this by no means indicates an overall destruction of the Canaanites, but only those in alliance with Hatzor. So future oppressors and subjugations by various groups of Canaanites were all but assured. Let's move on to Judges chapter 5. We're going to read it all and just talk about it for a couple of minutes and call it a day. Judges chapter 5, page 274. On that day, Deborah and Barak, the son of Avinoam, sang this song. When leaders in Israel dedicate themselves and the people volunteer, you should all bless Adonai. Hear kings, listen princes, I will sing to Adonai. I will sing praise to Adonai, the God of Israel. Adonai, when you went out from Seir, when you marched out from the field of Edom, the earth quaked and the sky shook. Yes, the clouds poured down torrents. The mountains melted at the presence of Adonai at Sinai before Adonai, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the main roads were deserted. Travelers walked the byways. The rulers ceased in Israel. They ceased until you arose, Deborah. You arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods when war was at the gates. Was there a shield or a spear to be seen among Israel's 40,000 men? My heart goes out to Israel's leaders and to those among the people who volunteer. All of you, bless Adonai. You who ride white donkeys, sitting on soft saddle blankets, and you walking on the road. Talk about it. Louder than the sound of archers at the watering holes will they sound as they retell the righteous acts of Adonai the righteous acts of his rulers in Israel. Then Adonai's people marched down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break into song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captive son of Avinoam. Then a remnant of the nobles marched down. The people of Adonai marched down to me like warriors. From Ephraim came those rooted in Amalek. Behind you, Benjamin with your people. From Machir, the commanders marched down. And from Zebulun, those holding the musterer's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Issachar along with Barak. And into the valley they rushed forth behind him. Among the divisions of Reuben, they made great resolutions in their hearts. But why did you stay at the pens for the sheep? And listen to the shepherd's flute playing for the flocks concerning the divisions of Reuben there were great searchings of heart Gilead lives beyond the Jordan Dan why does he stay by the ships Asher stayed by the shore of the sea remaining near its base the people of Zebulun risked their lives Naphtali too on the open heights kings came and they fought yes the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh at the waters of Megiddo but they took no spoil of silver. They fought from heaven, the stars in their courses. Yes, they fought against Sisera. The Kishron River swept them away. That ancient river, the Kishon River. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. 
Then the horse's hooves pounded the ground, their mighty steeds galloping at full speed. Curse Meroz, said the angel of Adonai. Curse the people living there with a bitter punishment for not coming to help Adonai, to help Adonai against the mighty warriors. Yael will be blessed more than all women. The wife of Heber the Cani will be blessed more than any woman in the tent. He asked for water, she gave him milk. In an elegant bowl, she brought him curds. Then she took a tent peg in her left hand and a workman's hammer in her right, and with the hammer she struck Sisra, pierced his skull. Yes, she shattered and crushed his temple. He sank down at her feet, he fell and lay there. He sank at her feet, he fell. Where he sank down, there he fell dead. Sisra's mother looks out the window, peering out through the lattice. She wonders, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why are his horses so slow to return? The wisest of her ladies answer her, and she repeats it to herself, of course, they're collecting and dividing the spoil. A girl, two girls for every warrior. For Sisera, booty of dyed clothing, a plunder of colorfully embroidered garments. Two embroidered scarves for every soldier's neck. May all of your enemies perish like this, Adonai. But may those who love him be like the sun going forth in its glory. Then the land had rest for 40 years. Now we're certainly not going to get very far into this today, but we're going to get started. This chapter I just read to you is properly known among Jews and Christians alike as the Song of Deborah. And although some modern scholars disagree, the Hebrew sages say that there's no doubt that Deborah herself authored this song, even though, and equally without doubt, that some amount of editing has been done to this over the centuries. Now, before we delve very deeply into the song of Deborah, a reasonable question right about now for us ought to be this. Was Yael justified in murdering Sisera in cold blood? After all, the song of Deborah goes to great length to glorify, glorify and justify Sisera's death, even going so far as to mock Sisera's mother, who waited anxiously for him at home, scanning the horizon for a son she loved but was never going to return to her. Now, I don't think that the more moral issue of Yael's actions can be so easily resolved as some of the more well-known Christian scholars claim it can. Okay. The usual take on this in Christian circles is that while the Lord was well aware that Yael would use treachery and murder to end Caesar's life, that it was wrong. C.F. Keel, in his masterly commentary on the book of Judge, Judges, sums it up like this. This is a quote. Nevertheless, the act of killing Caesar was not morally justified either by this prophetic pronouncement or by the fact that it is commemorated in a song, the Song of Deborah. Even though there can be no doubt that Yael acted under the influence of religious enthusiasm for the cause of Israel and its God, and that she was prompted by religious motivations to regard the connection of her tribe with Israel, the people of the Lord, as a higher and more sacred not only than the bond of peace in which her tribe was living with the Abin, the Canaanite king, but even than the duties of hospitality, which are so universally sacred to the Oriental mind, that her heroic deed cannot be acquitted of the signs of lying, 
treachery, and assassination. The Hebrew sages, as one might expect, are a little more tolerant of her actions, although they don't entirely excuse them either, interestingly. In fact, some very fanciful rabbinical commentaries say that what Yael did first was to seduce Sisera. And she seduced him seven times. A couple of quick points to ponder while you're making your own decision about this. First, Yael was not an Israelite. And her God was not Jehovah. Second, it's pretty hard to fault someone for ridding the world of a tyrant by whatever means. And third, we find Israel using deceit, spying, ambush, the cover of darkness, and other stealthy and grisly means to kill their enemies in a number of biblical situations. And there's no recorded chastisement from the Lord against it. Even so, there is some line in the sand that probably ought not to be crossed, even when dealing with a vicious and heartless enemy. The problem, especially for modern Western Christians, is, is that this assassination of Sisra by Yael seems so barbaric and, and horrible compared to our modern sentiments and sensibilities of morality and fair play. But our sentiments are certainly not the standards of that era or the Middle Eastern culture in general. In fact, the Islamic methods that we see depicted today with beheadings, lopping off of hands and feet for relatively minor crimes, honor killings, where a father will kill his daughter because she refuses an arranged marriage, blood feuds that go on for generations, etc., give us a pretty good picture of ancient Middle Eastern and biblical society in general. Of course, with Israel, God ordained a different way than all other peoples, but not so different as we might sometimes suppose. Their general customs still operated very much like their neighbors. And while we need to be thoughtful in our assessment of this act of Yael upon Sisera, we also need to note that never did God ordain or direct Yael's actions even though he foreknew them. In the end, though, followers of the God of Israel are held to a higher standard than those who are not his. Not that a Hebrew woman might have not done exactly as Yael did if she had the opportunity. This is where, we'll end with this today, this is where the rabbinical method called call vomer is so valuable for us. The principle of light and heavy. There will always be in this sinful and fallen world situations that have no good resolution. Not even for the most pious believers and studied Bible teachers. I have given the example in prior lessons of Corey Ten Boom, who saved many Jewish lives during World War II by blatantly disobeying her government. 
hiding Jews wanted by the police, regularly lying as to where their as to their whereabouts so as to keep them from the death camps. Yet in both the Old Testament and the New, we're told that lying is a sin under any circumstance. And in the New Testament especially, we're told we're to submit to our governments because human government is ordained by God. For Hebrews, the matter is handled by applying the principle of call vomer. And thus, the greater good of saving innocent life is weighed against the smaller evil of lying and not submitting to our human authorities and thus the proper course of action for a God-fearer becomes more clear. I think that even though Yael was a pagan, we should look upon her murderous actions in that same way. She committed a terrible evil that ended an even greater evil. Okay. We'll continue with the song of Deborah next time we meet.